Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. All the Israelites, when they saw the man, fled from him and were very much afraid. David said to Saul, Let no one's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're just a boy, and he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down, and kill it. David said, The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped Saul's sword over the armor, and he tried in vain to walk, for he was not used to them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I am not used to them. So David removed them. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in his shepherd's bag in the pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. The Philistine came on and drew near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. But David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This very day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the Philistine army this very day to the birds of the air and to the wild animals of the earth, so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not save by sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. This is the word of the Lord. All right, this is probably the best known story in all of the Hebrew scriptures. We learned it from the time we were children. We've heard it told and told and retold. But let's stop and look at a few of the details that may help us before I get to the four things that I've underlined for today. First of all, we know where this battle was going to take place. Uh, it's called here the Valley of Elah. It is called in modern times the Valley of the Acacias. We are told that it was 12 miles from Bethlehem. Well, we certainly know where Bethlehem is. Bethlehem is five miles just south and west of Jerusalem. And if you go 12 miles farther south and west toward the Mediterranean, do you know where you are? You're in the Gaza Strip. The people who lived in the Gaza Strip have been a problem to the Jews for 3,000 years. When Moses had first sent out 12 spies to spy out the land to see if they could in fact cross the Jordan River into this promised land, 
The committee of 12 came back and said, we can't do this. We are like grasshoppers. By them, they are huge. Uh, anthropologists looking at the forerunners of today's Palestinians who live in the Gaza Strip believe that the people who lived there when those 12 first spied out the land, uh, we're talking about, about 3,200 years ago, uh, that in fact these folks had come from Western Europe. They were taller. Now, we're not sure exactly how tall Goliath was. Some of the ancient manuscripts can be translated into English as nine feet, nine inches tall. But other ancient manuscripts say six feet, nine inches tall. If we translate that out in the number of cubits and spans, six feet, nine. But scholars like Bruce Birch and Walter Brueggemann say, even if six feet, nine is the right number, the average Israelite of that day, the males were about five feet, two. So you're still looking at someone who's a foot and a half taller than you. Ten of the twelve said, we cannot do this, Moses. Only Joshua and Caleb said, we can. And so Moses took the majority report, you recall. They wandered in the desert from grazing place to watering hole for 40 years. So that generation died out, and Joshua was then able to lead the people across the river. Well, that was 200 years before this incident. 200 years later, they're still battling these dreaded Philistines. Now, we know that a wadi, uh, we would call a, an arroyo or a, a gulch of some sort, uh, ran full of water in the wet season of the year in wintertime, but had no water in the summertime. So these two armies have drawn up on either sides of a wadi. Uh, every ancient weapon of war was aided by gravity. So people at the top of the hill had a decided advantage over the people at the bottom of the hill. Neither side wanted to go down into the valley first so that the other had gravity working in its favor. Instead, the Philistines sent this giant of a man, Goliath, out every morning to scream across the wadi, Why doesn't one of you fight me? And whoever wins, the other will be servant of that one. Let's look at the story. Number one, it says, And when the Israelites heard this man screaming these words, they were dismayed. They were frightened. They fled. What frightens you? What's deepest in your heart that would frighten you? What power, what what presence in the world uh, sends you scurrying for help, sends you running from a perceived enemy? Disease? Death? Terrorists? Uh, loss of job? Loss of home? What is it that strikes right at the very heart of your terror, your fear? Harper, uh, the New Yorker magazine had an article just last week about the caves in southern France <clears throat> where uh, scholars have found the oldest drawings known to have made by human beings. Uh, Gail and I five years ago decided we wanted to see those caves uh, some have now been closed off. Others admit very small groups at a time. You have to have reservation well in advance. And you must be guided by a proper person who really knows how to preserve these ancient drawings. But in the cave in Lascaux, and particularly in Chauvet, uh, we're told that those paintings on the walls of the caves go back 
2,500 years. Uh, almost to the time that we believe Homo sapien first came out of the continent of Africa. For 200,000 years, this particular area had been inhabited by Neanderthals, uh, but these Neanderthals didn't seem to have the ability to do artistic work. As far as we know, they didn't paint anything. We have nothing from that period. But very careful carbon dating shows that these paintings are, in fact, 37,500 years old. They're done in two colors. Uh, they have dark black, charcoal, and they have a red ochre-looking color. Um, in cave after cave, the drawings are very similar, the paintings. Um, these paintings picture a few animals that roamed the earth at that time. They have horses. You have bison. You have the precursor of the bison, now extinct. You have ibex on the walls. Strangely enough, they have not found in any of these caves any drawing of conflict of human against human. None. Not a single drawing of a person fighting a person. Just these animals. Gail is troubled by claustrophobia, and so we were really worried about whether she could go into some of those caves or not. And there were times when you were uh, having to, to sort of bend yourself into awkward shapes just to get through where the, the rock walls came so close together. But these ancient humans had, in fact, used the, the rounded portions of the cave to make the big breast of a bison stand out even more. That's where they painted them. And then in the recesses, the smaller uh, back end of the bison. They really are magnificent. And some of them seeming almost life-size. They turn out the lights on you in there because they don't want to damage the paintings. And so they, they have little lamps and with little tiny uh, lanterns that they can turn on. And then as you move through each page, they turn out the light behind you and turn on just a small one in front of you so that you can see again. But in this New Yorker magazine, the scientists now have been trying to figure out what do the drawings mean. And there are two primary camps as to what they mean. But all the scholars seem to agree with this, that these people, Homo sapien, the walking upright human, this, this truly human was also Homo spiritualis. This was a spiritual being. This was a person who had religion. Now, this was long before Abraham and Sarah. This was long, long before Jesus of Nazareth. But these were spiritual people. And these were spiritual places. And one scholar quoted as saying, like going into our houses of worship today, people unfamiliar may not know what your artwork represents, but those who are inside know what it represents. They know what it means. When we say one mosaic depicts God is revealed in the Hebrew Scriptures and the other God is revealed in the Christian Scriptures, you and I understand. We see the symbols and we understand what they mean. But the very last sentence of this article, which was several pages long, said, though we do not know exactly what their symbols meant to them, we know that outside the caves there was a world of turmoil for them. Nature could be friend and nature could be foe. And these huge animals certainly could have done havoc in a small family or tribe of people. And so these caves 
these caves were both a womb and a sepulchre. That interesting sentence. Both a womb and a sepulchre. Out of the spiritual, these people went out into the big world, but they also came back, came back to the place of death, the place of death. What frightened you most? What frightened you? How far do you venture out? How quickly do you run back? Number two. David said to Saul, I can go out and meet this Philistine. You're just a boy. Now you have to read the whole story, which we didn't have time to do in, in, this, in this worship service. You have to read the whole story to know that David was not even a part of the army. He's just a boy. He's a teenager. David is the eighth son of a very remote family. They lived at a little nowhere place called Bethlehem. Uh, he had been a shepherd boy all of his life. He had never gone into battle, as far as we know, against anything but predators who threatened his little flock. And he said, but I've dealt with lion and I've dealt with bear. And the fact that I've dealt with them before... And the word here in Hebrew is often translated delivered or handed over. As God handed over the bear to me, handed over uh, the lion to me, God will hand over to me the Philistine. I've done battle before. The Rotarians in Texas were the first to start training their presidents-elect in groups bigger than district conferences. Uh, districts usually train their own presidents elect. Rotary World turns over every 12 months. A new year begins July 1, ends June 30. And so all these new presidents of Rotary Clubs around the world must be trained, more than 32,000 of them. Uh, Texas decided they could do a better job if they didn't just concentrate on districts where you might have 45 or 50 Rotary Clubs. If you had all the clubs in the state come together in one place in one time, you could get speakers from farther away. You'd have a bigger budget and that sort of thing. And so they have been meeting now for the past 22 years at the hotel that sits right in the middle of DFW Airport. And I've been the kickoff speaker Friday at noon, year after year. They want me to speak on the incoming president of Rotary National's theme, and he's announced it just three or four weeks before that, usually late. February, and this conference is held in late March. Fifteen months ago, I spoke on the incoming president's theme, and he was sitting in the audience. And he asked me, would you give that speech at the closing session of Rotary International in Los Angeles to end my year? And I told him I would. So Tuesday night, I flew out to Los Angeles. Um, Rotary... Uh, is a very tightly structured organization when they come to these big conventions. And I was told a driver would meet my plane at, at Los Angeles Airport and would take me to the hotel and my room would be waiting for me. And the next morning, uh, actually 12.15 that day, they would drive me. A driver would come and drive me to the Los Angeles Convention Center. I would have 10 minutes to rehearse on stage at 1 o'clock while everybody else is having lunch. And then the session in the afternoon would begin at 3.30, the closing session, and the president would introduce me, and I would be on. I got to Los Angeles, got to my hotel, and was reading a newspaper I'd picked up in the airport, and it said, tomorrow, 20,000 Rotarians 
will gather for the closing session of their international uh, convention. So when they picked me up at the hotel and drove me down, uh, there was a woman who met us at the door, the back door of the Los Angeles Convention Center, and she said they've turned out all the lights uh, to give the air conditioning even better chance to, to, to do its work and so on and to save lots of electricity and power, uh, but, but I'll, I'll show you around. And I said, okay. And she turned on a flashlight and started leading me through all this dark space behind the curtain. And she's leading me through, and finally she says, now, these curtains, we've set up our little green room here, so this is where you'll be waiting. And there's coffee, there's hot tea, there are cookies, and uh, you, you can just wait right here. I'll come back and get you at 1 o'clock, and then I'll bring you back here after you've had your 10 minutes to rehearse, and uh, then you'll wait till 3.30. I said, okay. She left, and I'm sitting there in the darkness, you know. Uh, the only light is from the coffee urn. There's a little tiny light on the front of it, and I'm sitting there in the dark with this coffee urn and the tea-making machine, uh, just sitting there waiting all by myself. At one o'clock, she came back and, with her flashlight, led me through the curtain onto the stage, and I could see 20,000 empty seats. I'd never spoken to 20,000 people. At one time, never. Never. I've spoken to 1,000. I've spoken to 1,500. I've spoken to 2,000. On television, I preach to more every Sunday, but they're not all together. They're one, two, three, scattered in many different homes and places. 20,000 people. 20,000 people. Took me back. Gee, when I started preaching, at 9.30 I was preaching to 18 people. And sometimes I would be so frightened on the way I would have to pull over beside the road and run behind a tree and throw up before I preached to 18. And then I would drive back 17 miles and preach to an average of 56. But I remembered my grandmother Biggs having said to me, I don't always know where you are. But before I crawl out of the bed in the morning and before I sleep at night, I pray for you that God will help you. I'd seen my mother five days before. She's 88 now. Her dementia is so bad she hasn't been able to call my name in two and a half years. I think she has an idea who I am. Her face lights up when I walk into her room. She hugs me. I kiss her on the cheek. But I don't think she can call my name. Occasionally she'll speak about Dad for just a moment, but she doesn't call his name either. She says, my man, my man. My man died. And I said, I know. I know. But all those years when I needed her most, she was there. She's the one who first took me to church. She's the one who first prayed with me. She's the first who saw that I was always in Sunday school and always in worship and always in youth group, that I got to go to summer camp and all this. If you sit in the dark for three hours, you can think about a lot of things. So I thought and thought, gee, how many years it's been? How many years? 
how many miles I've flown, how many miles I've driven to speak, preach, speak, preach, but never to 20,000 in one place. I already had the sermon written. I knew where it was going. And somehow I felt with David, I've never met this Philistine, but I've met lions and bears. And God was always there, always there. Number three. Saul clothed David with his armor, bronze helmet, coat of mail, Saul's sword. David removed them. Remember our text two weeks ago? The people are begging Samuel to anoint them a king so we can be like everybody else. And in fact, Saul has become like all the other kings. Taking, taking, taking. And now he's engaged in a great battle with these Philistines and He's going to wage war the way they wage war. You put on all the armor you can possibly stand, all that you can still move around with. You get the biggest sword you can swing, and you go down into the valley to meet Goliath. And David took all those things off. Took them off. He stopped down at the edge of the wadi where the waters do run in the wintertime and picked up five smooth stones that had been tumbled by the rushing waters over the years, put them in a little pouch, went down to meet Goliath. Yeah, Goliath. A child. A child. A very young boy who's going down to meet. It's interesting that in this whole story up to David's arrival, no one has even mentioned God. And David starts talking a lot about God. Not only does he mention God several times, but then he mentions the name from the burning bush. The Eye Asher Eye, the I am who I am, will be with us. We are Yahweh's people. We are Yahweh's people. A child. When I was waiting for the plane late Tuesday to leave from Tulsa, there was a black father there with a boy. Uh, he looked to be about the age of my granddaughter, Abby. I guess he was 12, maybe 13. Um, nicely dressed. I mean, he had on school-looking clothes, but he was really neatly dressed. And they were just talking quietly to each other. And suddenly the woman started saying that people could get onto the plane, and she said children and others. And then I realized the father wasn't going with this boy. He was putting him on the plane. And I heard him say to him, they were standing just right beside me there, the father said to the son, you make really good decisions. What an affirmation. You make really good decisions. If you feel you do not have enough information, ask somebody. Hugged him. Sent him down the runway. Lo and behold, when I got on the plane, he was the one I was seated next to. And what a sweet kid. What a sweet kid. Quiet. Asked only a question or two as we went along. And when we got off the plane in Los Angeles, there was his grandfather waiting for him. You make good decisions. I know you make good decisions. You don't have enough information. You ask. Byron Janice, 
is a pianist. He's 80 years old now and was recently interviewed about some of his earlier experiences. When he was only 34, he was sent to the Soviet Union. It was 1960. 1960. Some of us remember that far back. A U-2 plane had been shot down over Russia. We had a plane that we thought was flying higher than any Russian weapons could reach us, and we were doing surveillance. We were doing surveillance with a U-2 plane, and Gary Powers was shot down, you remember. And Byron Janis was sent by our State Department to play a concert on piano in Moscow. And he said when the curtain parted and he walked onto the stage, this huge crowd of Russians were screaming together, You too, you too, you too. He didn't know what to do. I mean, this animosity between these two great superpowers, each of which had enough nuclear weapons to blow the planet Earth into smithereens. And they were screaming at this pianist. He said, I didn't know anything to do except start playing. And so he played one classical piece after another. And the crowd got quiet. By the time he got to intermission, they applauded. And by the time he had concluded his concert, uh, they were on their feet cheering. He was asked to come back two other times to the Soviet Union. The State Department was trying to soften up relationships a little bit between our country and the Russians. And this, this celebrating the arts of the other was one of the ways of doing that. Byron Jenner said he was sitting in his dressing room the next time, waiting to be taken on stage when there was a knock at the door. And a mother was standing there with a little boy. And this little boy, who could speak no English, simply held up to him a wrapped piece of chocolate. He said, understand how significant that was until someone told me that under communism, everybody made, and the chocolate was rare and expensive. And this child had brought me his piece of chocolate. Later, he said, I was introduced to a little boy. I was told that he had unusual abilities to play the piano. Would I listen to him and see if I could coach him a little bit? I asked him to play. And he said he began to play, but he was barely touching the keys. I listened a few moments and finally said, Louder, son, louder. Could you play louder? And the little boy said, Was I playing? Too softly? Yes, yes, too softly. And he said, There are so many people scrunched together in our apartment that I must play so that I do not disturb anyone. And Byron Janice said, This little boy had been taught to play his music so that no one The Bible says we are to play so that others will hear. And we are to play the tune. We are to make the decisions based on information we've been given about who God really is, about what God really wants to happen, about how God wants things to unfold in this earth. Number four. The giant taunts David. Who do you think you are?
to come out against me. David tells him who he is. But I love this little line, and I'm sure you did too when you heard it. Did you really hear it? Today, David said, I will kill you so that the world will know there is a God in Israel. And this will happen because the battle is the Lord's. When you and I come to those moments when we are afraid about the future of the church, we're really afraid that the Christian faith will never get its job done. We need to remember the battle is the Lord's. If this is the truth he once declared in all the world, it will be declared. If he does in fact want his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, it will come. Simply have to surrender to the will and the purposes and the power of God. Julia Attaway has written recently about her two-year-old. She said, my little two-year-old boy has gone sort of berserk, she said. I don't know why he needs things. She said, he, he gathers up things, and the more threatened he feels at any given moment, the more things he seems to gather up. If we're just going outside, he gathers up strange things. It may be a pot out of the kitchen. It may be the lid to something. He just gathers up things, as many as he can hold. She said, I was recently fixing dinner one night, and he was playing just in the other room. By the time I heard him crying and rushed in to see if he was all right, I could see a little bump on his forehead. It even had a little purple spot right in the middle of it. Somehow he had fallen and bumped his head on something in his room. And I squatted down with my arms outreached. And he had so many things. He had gathered up two stuffed animals. He had a little tiny wicker basket. He had an old fireman's helmet in his hands. So many, he couldn't get close to me. Later, I thought, why does he feel such a need for things that he could not drop them all and come into the arms? of the one who could help.